This time around we're going to be looking at Scanners, the um, once legendary 1981 movie written and directed by David Cronenberg. This used to be fairly notorious and very famous throughout the 80s, certainly. I think mostly for one scene though, right? Not as like a piece of work for a moment. I, th I think, honestly, it was actually perceived as more than just that. And it did figure quite large in David Cronenberg's sort of filmography for a while until, sure, sure. until you know, obviously, as he accumulated more more and varied films, this kind of faded into the background. And part of the reason I wanted to talk about it is because I do think it's actually, you know, still very watchable and very interesting. And it does tend to get sidelined, even in, you know, Cronenberg on Cronenberg, it still only merits like 10 pages or something. Oh, really? Okay. Because it feels um, like it's a real turning point in terms of his career. He goes from pretty low-budget work into, you know, he had like financial success of this, and this is his kind of springboard into... Hollywood, you know, really, yeah. Yeah, the Hollywood level. I mean, he has he ever worked in Hollywood? I think he's never actually shot in the States, has he? I don't think so, no. He's made it, films... Uh, I think there's a little bit of Map to the Stars was the first time he'd ever shot in the States. Yeah. Everything yeah. else is Canada, UK, and... Austria, I think, for a dangerous method. Yeah, this is the, the first big breakthrough hit. He'd, he'd had a really well-regarded sleeper minor hit with The Brood, which is his first sort of mature film in 79. But then this one, it was a very slow week, apparently, but it was number one in Variety's films that week, one oh, week, okay. when it was released. So suddenly everyone knew his name and yeah, was sure, sure. paying attention. He talks, um, there's a little interview with him on the Criterion edition where he talks about his work being more recognised in the UK than it was in the US and Canada at the time. Do you know much about that? Only from what I remember, he, he definitely was covered in movie magazines. We used to see and then occasionally buy Starburst and stuff like that, and they started covering horror movies. And I guess, you know, as, as his films had recurring themes that would brand him as kind of like a nascent horror auteur. The um, Baron of Blood. The Baron of Blood. <laughs> is one of his nicknames. That's pretty... Uh, Apollo Creed, isn't it? Yeah. I guess, uh, you know, other kind of more highbrow magazines would start taking note, I can see. And I wanted to talk about it because, for me, it's one of those ones I'd put on a list of how to make a B-movie or how to make a memorable B-movie. And we'll talk about, you know, the, the pluses and minus in a bit. But, you know, it's, it's I've got this kind of paragraph note. It's like, if, if you know what effect you want to achieve, even if you're hampered with the basic writing, and even if it's your own very basic writing... Mm -hmm and the performances, you know, and perhaps the practical effects. If you can control everything else, like the art direction and the tone and the music, and, and make all that focus, then that'll balance it out. Yeah, you know, another example I'd give for that would be, you know, the Terminator. Oh, yeah, okay. It's, it has a limited central performance, shall we say, and it's a very basic story, and it has James Cameron's kind of clunky dialogue, but he's so in control of every other aspect yeah, of the yeah. filmmaking. Vision, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. I think that's true of Scanners as well. Against all odds, it, it still is a very, very sort of... Oh, I hesitate to say this because it is quite a rickety movie in places, but it does feel as controlled as any of Cronenberg's other kind of more highbrow films. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the first time I've kind of sat down and watched it in a long time, and I'd say I, I'm pretty certain I saw the exploding head scene on a VHS when I was 10 years old. Yeah. I never really saw the rest of the film. I think the cover was pretty terrifying on the VHS. It was the um, 
Michael Ironside like with his, his head thrown back. Yeah, 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 that's it. And like his body looks like it's warping from the inside out. It was just really terrifying. But I'm pretty sure I rented it at like 14 or 15. Sat down and found it like really boring and just couldn't connect to it at all. And then when you suggested it, I think I was like, okay, I'll give it a go. But the first viewing, I had the same reaction I was watching, going, this is really boring. There's so much wrong with it. I'm oh, I was cursing you. <laughs> I didn't even make any notes. And then I kind of switched it off, went to bed. And then like the next day, what I found was loads of the ideas that are in the film and loads of sequences and technique kept coming back to me and the second time I sat down to watch it again to take notes I found myself kind of looking around especially the central performance which is something we, we are going to have to talk about yeah but looking around that and looking at the themes and the ideas and you know some of the visuals and I don't know I just I started forgiving like some of the terrible plotting as well and you know there's so much in it that's like wrong and yet somehow it's reaching so far and you know its tone is like really measured and i don't know but by the end of the second and like and then skimming through it again to make more notes i don't know i feel like i'm i'm a convert i feel like in about six months i'm probably going to watch it again you know an open heart <laughs> and kind of look around the bits that don't work and let it go because mm. there was so much in it that i was i was just really blown away, away by i'm not quite sure where we should start but I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go into great detail about how I saw it. I, I, I was aware of it in the same way that I was aware of a lot of like adult and horror films when I was a kid in that they were in magazines. And then when I got a chance a few years later to rent it on video, rented it and watched it then. I think it was probably my first Cronenberg. I think after that, then I was... What are your feeling, feelings on Cronenberg? Because I'm, I'm a little bit... I wouldn't say it's kind of overrated, but I'd say he's very hit and miss. I have to sort of fall back on like the um, music analogy where I really like his early stuff. And then a lot of his mature stuff, but I do find I'm less and less interested in his more recent films. Yeah, I think everything from The Brood right through till, oh, see, Dead Ringers is great. I think there's, I never, ever have liked Naked Lunch. Um, and I think a lot of his films post-Naked Lunch, I don't really have a great deal of time for. Like as, history as, of Violence and yeah, History Promises. Sort of... Those two particularly, especially since there were such hits, if you like. Yeah, yeah. I find people are kind of overlooking some really, really blatant flaws and problems in them. Well, that's what I've just said about Scanners. Yeah. <laughs> I have to quote Kim Newman, who says quite accurately for me that Cronenberg's original ideas are far more interesting than the, the works that he tends to adapt. You know, he does a lot of literary adaptations now, I'm and sure. I find he makes those films very, very well. They're still beautifully made, um, very very polished and often quite interesting, but they're not as interesting as his own films. You know, that whole run, even even including what he brought to The Dead Zone and, and The Fly. You know, The Fly for me is a masterpiece. Yeah, it's really good. I'll be talking about The Fly more because I think it sits as a perfect partner to Scanners. Mm -hmm. um, they do a lot of the same things. I, yeah, I, I just don't think that his mature works based on other people's ideas are all that interesting. Yeah, okay. What what are your feelings on Cronenberg overall? I mean, I'm saying what I said because I was very, very close to his films. And I remember when The Fly came out and it was like a victory lap for all of us who'd been following him mm, and, sure, and yeah. knew that he was capable of doing <clears throat> these things and had seen the seeds of this in all his other movies. Yeah, it's a nice sort of, nice moment in his career, isn't it? Mm. A good actor to really breathe life into a character as well. And I think that in the later work when he has Viggo Mortensen to play with, you know, 
I think he's been quite lucky from from Videodrome onwards. You know, James Woods in Videodrome who nails it. Yeah, true, true. And um, Christopher Walken in I've Dead always, Zone. I've always found um, Videodrome to be like trying too hard, and never sort of really really got on with it. Videodrome was a very sort of shambolic, hesitant production as well. I think partly because it was a very loose and over ambitious script. But with them being quite similar productions, why do you think Videodrome doesn't work quite as well? The beauty of Scanners is. It's very simple conceit of ESP in this universe. It does exist, and it's contained in this local area because of one person, you know, affecting all the pregnant women in the area, yeah. creating scanner children, and then, you know, it's just really contained a contained world, and it's all about the conflict between two sets of scanners that's reduced essentially down to a sort of Cain and Abel story. And it feels like his mind was in the right place to deal with that kind of short notice production and for him just to keep, like, just bringing ideas out and putting them on screen. It felt like he was probably, you know, a highly uh, trained athlete at that point, you know, who's kind of, he could have just turned up with no script and winged it and, mm. you know, come out with something pretty interesting. I think Videodrome feels like a... It feels like somebody's got a bunch of ideas and some money and they're kind of messing around and it's not very coherent. Self-indulgent then? Yeah, like I said before, it feels like it's trying to be crazy and outlandish and disgusting and challenge you intellectually and challenge you as an audience member to keep your popcorn in your stomach. You know, it's, it's trying to, I just think it's trying to do too much and... It doesn't feel very sincere, whereas Scanners feels like it's somebody telling a story they genuinely believe in. And I think you do feel that watching Scanners, you know. There's a couple of choices visually. It's just really amazing moments of, like, layering faces over each other to yeah. show that there's some scanning control going on. To, and also, um, you know, there's a few really nice tracking shots. You know, there's, yeah. there's so many little wow moments that, it feels like it has the energy of something that's being improvised or a student that's steeped in film technique, you know, giving, giving carte blanche. It just, I don't know, there's, there's something really kind of mesmerizing about if it was as chaotic as they say. I think you, you get some of that energy mm. back, which is, you know, I think is important <laughs> because the, the central performance is another one of those sort of it hobbles, hobbles the film. I feel bad saying it because there's an interview with Stephen Lackon. He's such a great guy, he isn't seems he? Seems like such a really decent, interesting character, and he's had yeah. a whole like you know didn't really make much of his acting career and went off to be a, a visual artist and had a whole career doing that. And it feels like he wasn't that into acting and the acting business and show business. Yeah. And there's another interview with him online, which I'll I'll dig out and link to, and he just seems like such a really nice charming bloke so i feel a bit bad but it's putting some heat on his performance yeah I mean, it's odd that he's so like he again on camera being interviewed as himself he's so relaxed and open and everything yeah, but yeah. the performance is so so clenched and awkward isn't it yeah but and like he's like beautiful on camera as well the f yeah the first three or four minutes before he says anything you get his like chiseled looks but there's like beautiful eyes and some kind of depth to that and then mm. when he starts speaking he's like how about this mate you know it's like just as and the canadian accents really throw me as well that's that's very strange isn't it? you don't see that in films anymore i don't know i don't canadian accents. i've not noticed it as a as a canadian accent 
how about that? <laughs> I, I don't hear it as that. I just hear it as like a generic North American accent. Might be I might be making too much of of how you know hurried a production it was, as if it was something that just had to be you know dreamt up to be shot in two weeks' time. It was a script that he'd had hanging around since the early 70s, which he called Telepathy 2000. Um, and later it was uh, retitled The Sensitives. Suddenly this script kind of comes comes into shape and, and it kind of comes together pretty well on, on the fly. Yeah, I think so. He does say it was a very kind of scrappy production and that a lot of it was rejigged and saved in post-production the interview in Cronenberg on Cronenberg he says that's that's the most technique in post-production he's ever used of, oh, yeah, of splicing yeah. lines from here and there and rejigging uh -huh. things yeah, around sure. and then was it greenlit quickly for the Canadian tax credit exactly it so had, they to, had be... to spend the money by a year's end yeah and it was coming up to the end of the year mm. so they had to go into production and get principal photography done by the end of the year mm. otherwise the investment isn't really a write-off anymore which kind of explains why there were so many bits and pieces of reshoots and why they were able to come back and do you know the whole scanner duel mm. as a complete reshoot later the following year but yeah i, I agree you, you kind of get the feeling that this idea has been kind of percolating in his head and now he's just suddenly got you know, the chance to write a really good first draft on the fly. Bang. Yeah, that's it. Like and writing shoot, it on film. With like, you know, three, four films experience, meaning that he can improvise and find solutions on the fly yeah. and come up with like really interesting And it's, it's perfect, perfect timing as well because he'd just come off the back of his non-horror movie Fast Company, which was a, you know, an action movie about racing cars. Have you ever seen that? Not completist in that way, no. That was that was the first movie where his creative team came together. Kind of had his DOP and his editor and his art director and possibly Howard Shore as composer um, on that movie. So you know he's got his he's got his team around him now. This is the first time we've actually kind of sat down and discussed it since we set ourselves the assignment of <laughs> of doing this. Um, it's quite gratifying to hear that that you warmed to the ideas in it because for me one of the things that makes this such a standout amongst other kind of similar low-budget horror movies of the time and as as a solid Cronenberg film is that it takes the basic idea which would be enough for a lot of filmmakers which is kind of yeah, yeah. telepaths at war but it teases out every every kind of disturbing aspect and tangent of it yeah it looks at it it takes it like totally seriously and then imagines what other kind of byproducts of mm. a world with telepaths in it you know there's an oft-quoted scene where one of the characters gets scanned by an unborn baby. Yeah, you know, and that sort of stuff. As you're watching, you're like, "Oh shit!" Yeah, really, exactly. Really creepy and really cool. And the strength of the telepath obviously relates to how broad their abilities are. You know, mm. and seeing them take control of other people and uh, use it as a as a weapon as a mind control. You know, there's lots of permutations on it, which I, I just mm. thought was really kind of rounded exploration of it as a as a theme as an idea and there's there's all the other sort of subsidiary things as well like when they when um kim obrist's group kind of scan together as a group mind yeah, that's right yeah that's a really nice it's a real kind of disturbing idea you know of losing yourself in a group mind and becoming one one mind and then yeah yeah but they're oblivious to the uh intruders that are in well, the that's room well. that's watching it you know watching it a second third time around it's there's kind of like would you call it pl plot holes or inconsistencies where you you would think like a group mind would be super aware and perhaps it might be 
you know more useful if they're in different parts of the building well yeah i mean then you get you know it's one of those films you sort of don't want to get too much into nuts and bolts yeah putting a microscope on some of the logic because then it like you know it all goes up in flames (laughs) you know and especially like the, the actual storytelling the plotting and the connections between the characters the two brothers their father and the company that he owned and the company that he works for once you start putting a microscope on that stuff as well it's like oh my god that's really soapy and (laughs) it doesn't even make much sense so you know there are moments in it when you're looking at it especially i think the first time if you're going in judgmental where yeah yes these guys are doing a group scan so their minds are connected and you would expect the the radius of that scan to really be hypersensitive to other individuals that are under some kind of telepathic control entering the room mm. in which they're doing their group session um but yeah i don't know yeah. Mm. but if we skip past that then then immediately off the back of that you have you know a number of them are gunned down and there's another idea as well if you're part of a group mind and you survive that you you know what it's like to experience death yeah see that's that's what it's waiting for yeah. <laughs> um and, you know and and later stuff as well you know you've got um scanning a computer yeah, I like that. There was one one of the scenes that really it comes quite later later on, but one of the scenes that I was just like, okay, yeah, there's something here. There's definitely something here. It was when um, Kim scans one of the security guards in the facility towards the end, yeah. and he just sees his mother. He's yeah. looking back at his own mother, and he's like apologizing. And it's just done in, in a cut. Like, there's no sort of fancy gimmickry. It's purely done in a, a well thought out well edited sequence mm. and i was just like okay hats off that's, that's <laughs> really nicely crafted very simple very effective and then yeah as you say the um the, the un the unborn baby scan i remember being extremely freaked out um, and yeah, yeah. i get freaked out by fetus imagery and ideas yeah, of yeah. unborn children so the idea of being scanned by an unborn child mm-hmm. is really really quite chilling um and then obviously you know the, the gruesome fight to the death by scanning powers and then even at, even at the end of the film there's a final stinger um of kind of like psychic transference and yeah, amalgamation right. into a single body yeah, it's, that's it's it. really strange it's really good ambiguous you know, ending all of those those moments are what kind of elevate it i think exactly but yeah. it, what it does have is kind of concrete boots on at the same time yeah you know which uh all the things that should be great, some of the performances, some of the writing, you know, some of the set pieces, you know, some of it just is terrible. I think it gets, it does get away with it. I mean, let's talk about the film, not kind of scene by scene, but in a, like a general overview of, of what what we see and yeah. how the, the threads are connected. I mean, again, we don't want to look too closely, but I mean, there's, there's some really lovely scenes and... Like for me, I'm a bit of a fan of you know the interiors of the 1970s yeah. and the opening sequence in a shopping mall. It's really beautiful, like really deep red colours. You have uh, those light bulbs suspended from the ceiling that have the they're coated in like a half moon reflected uh, surface. All those thoughts and designs of the 1970s are. Uh, finally made their way into mainstream architecture mm. and interior design for shopping malls and office buildings and you know the interiors i just think they're so lush you know i'm taking kind of style notes while i'm watching it. I, just, <laughs> I like the way the film looks it is it is a particular at this stage 
I think it is quite a fashionable looking film. But I'll, I'll flag it up later on. But there's a lot of kind of establishing shots of of industrial buildings yeah, yeah. with a like low winter sun and that yeah, kind of. It's, yeah, it's right. just this is really you know on trend for. Yeah, yeah, and but in that you know that period before you know when the population of the planet was half of what it is now you know and you could build a, a uh, an industrial building and for it to be the only thing mm. in that area <laughs> apart from like a really flat car park you know they're not kind of butted up against each other in mm. these dense kind of forests of skyscrapers that we're kind of used to now and i'm sure even canada looks uh where is it ontario that they were shooting yeah i'm sure that's much more built up now you know mm. 40 years later again this is this is i guess carol spear and, and her team like all these really nicely chosen locations and yeah. interiors and you know right down to the some of the exterior establishing shots it's it's these are the ways that you kind of you build your film when you haven't got the, the kind of solid budgetary foundation that that you'd have for a for a big film you know you just you just put your ideas into and make your choices count yeah find spaces that are the perfect backdrop for this story mm. I do I do quite like there's a little bit in this um opening scene in the shopping mall where um Vale on on instinct kind of scans scans a middle-aged woman who's making fun of him. Yeah, it's like a spiteful scan, isn't it? Yeah. Um but there's this odd kind of weird early Cronenberg sexual kink to it where she kind of falls to the floor in a fit and her skirt kind of rides up. Yeah. And it's that kind of uncomfortable she's thing. She's quite an old lady, isn't she? Or she's sort of yeah, like late middle-aged and you're thinking <laughs> You don't even want to admit to yourself that you're feeling uncomfortable yeah. about about seeing this. It's mm. that kind of can't quite put your finger on it. Mm. Weird sexual discomfort. Yeah, yeah. He's he's always been slightly pervy, hasn't he? <laughs> I think that's... And yeah, and there's a, there's another bit in 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 it as well. I'm I'm going to talk about how this is a lot like The Fly, but um, throughout. Mm-hmm. But there's the bit I remember watching it with my friend on video for the first time. We both winced really badly when he gets a dart in his hand. Yeah, yeah. It's just that kind of close-up of personal injury that Cronenberg was quite good at, at mm. still does it to this day as well I think it's a bit in the history of violence after the attack in the cafeteria um, where you just kind of get this gloating close-up of somebody's ruined face yeah sure but I, I remember like the dart in the hand being being particularly potent and I, I would compare that with the snapped wrist <laughs> um, third of the way through the fly mm-hmm. as well yeah, as yeah, a, sure. a sudden physical injury like, like really really hits you mm-hmm. hard mm-hmm. I, I do think the first act is pretty much the strongest in this movie I think when things get going and the train starts you know really pulling out of the station it does start to get a bit rickety you know as action scenes come and go and stuff but I think the setup is really really strong and the filmmaking's really really carefully constructed at the shopping mall he's apprehended by two agents and taken two agents in spy trench coats proper spy yeah yeah that's it it's <laughs> FBI 70s trench coats really inconspicuous how do they know to be there have they had a tip off or something is that or it's I, not I think just so, a coincidence yeah. well i mean it's suggested later in the film that ruth's had He's been zeroing in. He's on been zeroing Cameron in on Bay. Cameron. Well, he's known where he is and let him let him live like that, and was just keeping. I mean, should like we a... just like quickly flag up the one of the script's main conceits, which is that Doctor Ruth is the architect of all of the uh, telepathy, telepathic characters, all the scanners in the film, and he's mm. also the father of the antagonist and the protagonist. Yeah, that's that's. I haven't misunderstood that. No, no, that's absolutely it. So. Are we to believe that he's been monitoring his son and keeping him within, like, 
Well, I think arms reach. I think the initial suggestion. I think what you're supposed to think is that Consec have have been looking out for scanners, and they've noticed Vale, and this time they've they've seen him scan someone and apprehended him. It's only revealed later on um, from Daryl Revok that it's possible that that Ruth had known that Vale was a scanner all along and had, had been keeping tabs on him and letting him live like that until he felt felt like he wanted to bring him in. It's kind of this is one of the weird things in the script that where it doesn't quite work that it suggests that Dr. Ruth is quite Machiavellian and and quite cold and callous um but it doesn't quite translate because Patrick McGoon's performance is actually quite warm and, yeah, and tender. Yeah, he's good at bringing like complex depth yeah to something that's quite hammy yeah um and it's weird um the the movie was originally supposed to open with the next scene the exploding head scene yeah and into revok's uh, escape but then immediately after that there's a meeting where um dr ruth explains to the board and that extremely genial pipe smoking yeah. chairman of the board yeah. um who's far too pleasant a man you know as a sidebar that's a beautiful boardroom isn't it with that brushed steel table yeah and the red carpet yeah, tiles so lovely yeah it's really <laughs> nice but it's oh, so the that all the way up to there was the opening well if you if you assume that the meeting would follow on immediately afterwards and he says, in the structure, and he says, "Then, oh, I've got someone up my sleeve. I've got someone I've been keeping an eye on." And, and if you then cut, cut to, to Cameron coming through the door in the shopping mall, yeah, as as a derelict, then that is the mm. suggestion. If that was the original structure, then yes, Doctor Ruth has known about him for a long time and mm. has just let him live like this, which is more callous. But as it's as it's structured now, um, you would only really get that if you were told it by Revok at the end of the movie. Mm. Um, so it's a little bit confused i read everywhere that cronenberg switched those scenes so that latecomers to the film wouldn't miss the uh the big moment <laughs> but I'd, I'd read that it was it just hit people too hard and they would they never quite recovered from it for the for the to be able to take in the rest of the oh, okay but well set up in the interview that he does on the criterion edition he actually talks about there being a structural issue that the film just kind of the brakes slam on halfway through the first act once you kind of introduce Cameron Vale and the mm. film slows right down and he said he, he lost loads of people so that was why he made the switch but oh, that makes sense I think um, maybe to be kind to his lead actor he, he's kind of gone with the uh, so latecomers don't miss the big moment um, so yeah, I mean, without going into into too much detail, really, really, really liked the first scene with Doctor Ruth and Vale. It's I think it's a beautiful example of how to how to explain things gracefully to an audience and still have a visceral effect. Uh, basically, the scene is that that Vale is strapped to the bed. Ruth orders in a whole bunch of people, twenty or thirty people, yeah, yeah. who sit on chairs. Absolutely, you know, they mutter as they come in, but they're they're instructed to sit silently. Um, and you start to hear their thoughts building up and building up and overlapping through what I think is remarkably imaginative sound design, which you get a lot of throughout yeah, this really film. It's really nicely layered, isn't it? Yeah. 
And then um, you get a, a cutaway to, again, the exterior of the building, which is another of those Cronenberg um, strange warehouse spaces. Mm-hmm. It looks a lot like Seth Brundle's um, oh, yeah. warehouse yeah, sure. warehouse apartment loft in The Fly. Um, and then you come back to the scene and, and the voices are just kind of doing this horrible, fluctuating, mm-hmm. fluttering, distorted effect. twitching and sweating and and then Ruth gives Vale a shot of ephemeral um, the drug which created his scanning powers in the womb and which is the only thing that can calm them down and within one strange and effective scene the audience has been told the whole kind of setup of his psychic powers yeah you get it don't you yeah talk a bit more about Patrick Magoon in this but I think he nails the character within that one scene doesn't he yeah one presented version of the character which I think as the film progresses and we get all this kind of extra backstory from Revok about them being related and stuff I think that kind of undermines what we've seen before and I wonder if that wasn't just tagged on for the reshoot well my note is as well when I first first rewatched it is it felt a bit empire strikes back mm. it felt like that was what you had to do you had to tie these characters together in some Cronenberg up for directing empire strikes back for a while uh no he was up for um return of the jedi and off the back of that he goes straight into the most kind of legendary notorious scene in the film i mean it's the, it's the scene that everyone's seen isn't yeah it? it's exploding but, but it's i mean it is a great piece of cinema yeah. i mean at the end of the day and not just uh, i think like Louis Del Grand, the actor who plays the uh, scanner, you know, victim. Yeah, well, he's kind of he's a scanner himself, isn't he? And he's very yeah. sort of cocksure and you know corporate, and mm. you know he's got a really good face and a really good presence. He's really commanding, and he's sat in a really beautiful nineteen seventies auditorium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks like a university campus or something. All of the concept interiors have this wonderful kind of raw concrete. And red, and red, red carpet, carpets. yeah. Yeah, it's nice, it's a nice balance. And I think they're all kind of military personnel that are there to see a demonstration of s- scanning abilities. I think there's a bit of sort of corporate presence as well. And he's calling out for a volunteer, isn't he, to kind of read their mind and demonstrate his abilities. And uh, Michael Ironside <laughs> stands up, walks to the front, sits down next to him, and then you get this... Uh, it's quite nice because it, it is still a question. You don't really understand what's going on. Mm. 
but yeah, they have a kind of scanning duel where. Well, it's not even a duel. It's just it's kind of. Uh, well, I think yeah, one's fighting for his life and the other one's just pushing through his defenses remorselessly. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it goes one way, doesn't it? I think yeah. he lets him in a little bit, and uh, I think maybe once he sees the force and the power he's about to uh, mm. to face down, yeah, it's it's really good. And I think it's definitely worth like flagging up Michael Ironside f- from this point on. You know, he kind yeah. of he is so commanding on screen, and he does like there's something you know wonderfully sexual and you know dangerous about it when he scans. You know, other people they just sort of they do a bit of a Professor X where they're kind of holding their <laughs> temple and focusing and concentrating, and he's kind of pouting and licking his lips and. <laughs> groaning and grunting it's very kind of like terrifying and like really focused his eyes yeah it's really kind of penetrative isn't it yeah that's it it really feels like he's violating everybody that he kind of touches Mm. i think one of the early drafts or maybe even the uh burroughs short story that was a um a reference for cronenberg i think involves somebody doing a psychic rape on a train Mm. Did you read that? No. So, you know, I think that's probably what piqued Cronenberg's, you know, pervy uh, intuition early on. Mm. And I think that's what you definitely get from Ironside's performance. It's, it's yeah. really sexual. He's remarkable in it, isn't he? It's, um, it's, it's odd. You can, you can, you can still watch this, uh, you know, under the shadow of his, uh, regrettably, a lot of, a lot of his stuff since has been direct to video. Uh, yeah, but he had a brilliant stuff, but... kind of moment, didn't he, from... From this, he went to the first thing I ever saw him in was V. Do you remember that when he had like a leather jacket, looked really cool. He had like two Uzis, one in each hand, <laughs> and uh, you know he definitely. I remember seeing it when I was at school, and like everybody wanted to be his character. Nobody wanted to be like the Mark Singer character. Mm. And then I think the next thing I saw him in was Extreme Prejudice. Have you seen that? The no. Walter Hill, Wild Bunch kind of remake. He's really good in that, commanding his his military unit. Top Gun, Highlander Two, Starship Troopers. Yeah, but there's 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 also kind of does there's a lot of kind of director video stuff. I mean, he's got peaks. Later Total on, but Recall. I d- we haven't talked about Total Recall. But it's I I've always thought of him as like, you know, and he's a terrific actor. But when you fall into that sort of director video thing, you know, you're you're Amanda Sante, you're Rutger Hauer. As 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 good as you are, you kind of tainted a bit by the material. Sure. So when I see him in Starship Troopers, taking, yeah, take the money. Yeah, when I see him in Starship Troopers, I think, okay, I mean he's great in it. Yeah, yeah. But you think, okay, that's that's brave casting. That's mm. good. But it's possible to see him in this and just see he's, he just outshines all of that. Yeah, he's he? really he's, good, he's, isn't he? He's incredible. Fire. It's such a great performance. It's all the cliches. It's nuanced. It's <laughs> textured. You know, you see all the different layers. It's, it's really... got physicality as well. And Cronenberg really mm. knows how to shoot him, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. You know, it's the the scene where he's waiting he's outside the Kim's, Kim's like, yeah, commune yeah. house. But he's controlling those other gunmen that he's sending in. So, yeah. yeah. You couldn't talk about that long tracking shot. Yeah, the long sort of low angle tracking shot. So good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, he's dynamite in this. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. You you know, it's one of those. If maybe he'd have gone in a different direction, he could have, you know, had a a really nice kind of character career. Yeah, he could even have been a Nicholson, couldn't he? Mm, I think. It's a hairline thing. (laughs) I was thinking about comparing him to Nicholson because of the hairline. So I guess if we're talking about Michael Ironside and we're going to talk about Patrick McGoohan very shortly, should we talk about Stephen Lack? Yeah, I mean, we mentioned briefly how uh, 
genuinely decent. He comes across in the interviews yeah. and uh, he seems like a smart, talented, creative guy. But I think he has a very kind of low ceiling, a low range as an actor. I find there's there's moments in this when he's kind of okay. And I think a lot of that is because he's propped up in scenes with good people. It's it's almost comical, the scene that comes up later on where he goes to visit Benjamin Pierce yeah. in his artist studio. And you've effectively got two fairly non-professional actors. And it's almost impossible to know where to land in that scene yeah, because they're, it's, they're it's like a competition. Saying words at each other, aren't yeah. they? It's very, very surreal. Um, but it's such a beautiful scene. Again, you know, this is one of the sort of frustrating realities of this film is that in a beautiful scene like that, you have two terrible actors yeah. who are really uh, just not able to deliver lines yeah, in, a, to, in a to get realistic the point way. across or anything. But somehow, like the, the scene is, you know, another great set piece in mm. the film. It's very confusing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, we could just sit here and go like, oh, Stephen, like, he's not very good in this film. Well, I, I liked him. But, I liked him physically, and Cronenberg yeah, did love, cast I love, him. I love of how, how he looks. looks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, I wish he had he'd had less dialogue. I wish he'd been mute, and he had like a, a talking monkey as like his sidekick, <laughs> that kind of you know, cigar smoking talking monkey who just kind of gives you all the rest of the information. I, I. I've, yeah, <laughs> that's flawed me a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But there's, there's like when when you're looking at the way he delivers lines, even when he's delivering lines, I was looking at him and think, okay, well, you know, obviously his his eyes are, are unusual, but then there's like very very attractive things about him on screen. Like he's got a mouth which is sort of like Ben Mendelssohn's. I was mm. noticing that sort of very strange delivery, very strange physical delivery of words. Mm. And he's kind of quite compelling to look at, but it's just the inability to make words sound convincing. Yeah, it yeah. just flaws it. Mm. Um, there's a there's a phone call later on where he's he kind of phones up Doctor Ruth. I think it's where Doctor Ruth is relaxing in his club, um, and it's just like the sign off at the end of like, um, something like "Thank you, I'll speak to you soon, Doctor Ruth." And it's so clunkingly yeah, unrealistic. Yeah. And you think, well, there's a scene earlier on. Uh, when we first meet Kim Obris, there's a scene in an art gallery where Stephen like he just looks at the camera. It's like a sideways glance just to see where he is in relation to the the camera that's tracking right to left. It's like very strange. And Cronenberg was only giving him one or two takes and then just moving on. I think. He, yeah. I think he knew what he was dealing with. I mean, there's an there's an argument that if you cast a non-professional and they give you a non-professional performance, it can often give your movie a bit of flavour. It can make it yeah, seem... This, I think, and that's the problem where you have Ironside, who was, I don't know what stage his career was at at this point, but, you know, I, I think he's pretty much local theatre and he just is on fire. Yeah. And I think Stephen Lack... <laughs> Lack it's, not, it's not played on that. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> but I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. it's just. It. I just don't... Th- think he had the the right kind of energy and it, it doesn't work as a counterpoint it, it's just flat but it does it does kind of work i mean it's not even otherworldly you know when you see like david bowie in the man who fell to earth and he doesn't really do or say that much but he has just this kind of aura mm. about him that's kind of convincing and otherworldly and compelling this i think you initially you start off drawn to his looks and then you start stepping back further and further and you know just it, it doesn't give you it doesn't reward your patience mm. a couple of times early on in the film we see ephemeral the, the drug that was instrumental in creating the scanners and as i understand it is part of being able to 
suppress their abilities? Is it like a complete blanket suppression? Because with Revok, after he's exploded the head, they try and use it to shut him down. Well, this is this is where it all gets a bit this sketchy. Is if you start, murky, yeah. yeah, if you start to examine the details too closely, I think I've never quite understood because it seemed that with Cameron Vale, he says, "Oh, it stops the voices," but then he suddenly has full control over his Yeah, abilities. it allows him to focus. But then how are they going to use it to stop Revok from creating chaos? I don't really know. Because if it's just... If it's a blanket suppressor, yeah. fine, but it doesn't seem like it is. No, well, that's I think it's just an inconsistency we'll have to okay, live right. with. We get a nice sequence later on with Cameron Vale. He's being trained as a spy. There's a really, like weird scene where he goes to meet uh, an ancient yoga <laughs> guru yes who is this old man who looks like he's never sat on the floor before he looks really old <laughs> and stiff doesn't he? he doesn't look like a yoga guru at all well i get it's quite a powerful scene in terms it's of a good tension scene. yeah yeah because yeah. yeah, we see that cameron actually has quite a lot of power in his abilities and i'm wondering if it's if you know obviously we know we know the story back to front but i wonder if it's being sort of set up that scanning people might tend towards evil and you know there's a possibility because it's a fairly sadistic the way that he keeps the guy's heartbeat accelerating accelerating yeah, yeah. beyond the point where he's told to stop you might kill him um, and then just kind of lets him go and kind of quite smugly says you're right dr ruth it was easy and so i wonder if they're teasing him up as being you know his powers making him morally ambiguous that he might join the underground and yeah sure maybe and there's the flashback with revok which I really liked. Yes. And that was the, the only scene he was supposed to be in, right, Michael Ironside? I didn't know that. Yeah, I think he, he that's all he was signed up for was to be a patient in a flashback. Yeah. Archive, yeah, footage. archive footage. And I think from there they were like, oh, okay, this, <laughs> this is what we need. <laughs> and so then he, his role was written large. Mm. Yeah, he's really good in that. He looks really young as well compared to the, how we see him in the film. Mm. It's a really sort of convincing younger version of himself. Apart from that, there's a really long dramatic pause where he turns to the wall to throw a glass and then springs around with it. I thought that was, that was quite unnerving as well. <laughs> there's a little bit of corporate stuff where um, Keller, the consec goon, meets up with a mystery man who... I, I was quite surprised watching this back that it was revealed so much later that it was Revok because yeah, it's so no, fucking obvious yeah, yeah. that it's Revok. That was such a weird choice, that one. What a beautiful station that is, right? Yeah. That's... Uh, Yorkdale Station in Toronto. Mm. You know, when uh, you just see a space and you're just like, that's such a beautiful train station there. Like, you know, again, the steel escalators, the, mm. the curved glass wall at the top of the escalators, the lovely concrete. I, was, I paused the film, mm. did a little bit of research on the architect. I was pleasantly surprised. Mm. Yeah. So we're now um, into Act Two. Um, I, I broke the film into two acts. Oh, yeah, okay. The first one was all that establishing stuff, which I think works so well. The second one I've I've titled Vale's Quest, which sounds like a, a role-playing game. <laughs> yeah. This is where he's going going out into the world to find uh, Kim Obrist's group and and see if he can find so his he, way I to So I mean, Revit. he's been tasked by his uh, father to hunt his brother. That's yeah. Well, he's, well, it's not that at that stage. He's been tasked by Ruth to find Revok. So you get the scene that you've mentioned earlier in the in the Crostig Gallery, which is a good Cronenberg name, with the the comic camp homosexual gallery owner but he does get to meet Kim Obrist there played by Jennifer O'Neill she has top billing in the film yeah I mean she's clearly I'm quite surprised she's clearly the biggest star um, apparently was un unhappy working on the film because her agents had sent her a script without any of the violence in but then when she turned up it was 
you know, it wasn't the sort of thing she was into. It's strange because referring back to the kind of big reveal at the end, the, the two most powerful scanners are actually brothers. Mm. You know, her scanning ability is really strong. You know, she's able to set people on fire with her mind. You know, when they attack the uh, this this circle we talked about before. Yeah, she's got a really kind of strong psychic ability, strong telepathic ability, and she's clearly older than <laughs> those guys. So, well, here's the does, thing: she's she... she's thirty two. The character. Well, I don't know about the character, but the Jennifer O'Neill. I was surprised. When At I looked... the time, she's thirty two. Yeah, she looks about fifty five. Yeah, well, that's the thing: it's the grey hair makes her look significantly well, and, and older. The, the sort of little t- surgical tweaks. But she was 32. Shut up. No, really. It's a bit of a non-character, isn't it, um, Kim O'Brist? She's basically there to be tortured. But then I think Jennifer O'Neill does that pretty well. She, she does sort of suggest someone who's traumatised by the way that she perceives the world. and you get. Yeah, the... I think the idea is that it's supposed to be a team-up, isn't it, at the end? So Cameron Vale has his mission and he teams up with her and he by knowing her and her group he sees the she has a really wonderful line one of the best lines in it where they they're talking about revok and she says look we're the dream and he's the nightmare mm. you know this idea of what scanning could be to the human race i think she's supposed to guide him towards finding his own destiny yeah i thought i thought just the fact that he she because she also says that he's barely a human being and i think the fact that they spend time together makes him more compassionate and more human. Mm. But I do think that Kim Obrist and, and all of the other scanners in that kind of apartment building all do, do seem to be like recovering addicts in, to, in personality. They do sure. seem to be quite damaged and they have difficulty with the world and they kind of show signs of that. And I do think O'Neill's performance is, does kind of touch on that quite mm. well. Yeah, yeah. So Vale scans the gallery owner, doesn't he, to get the information? Yes, and then finds um, where Benjamin Pierce, the artist, works. Um, it's worth flagging up the, the gallery scene for the weird, bizarre, cartoony scanner art, isn't it? The strange mm-hmm. sculptures. Yeah. Which... Um, a very GCSE, apart from the very last one. Which that's is, what I was thinking. I was thinking, I, I'm wondering if they didn't kind of see if any of the kind of like sculptors or art designers had some mm. stuff that they wanted to get into a movie and then yeah, rather than it. have something designed especially but then when you get to pierce's barn the actual the works that he has there are really striking oh yeah it's that giant head like yeah. just on its side in the uh, and it's turned it into like a little cubby hole yeah but he's, he's also fleshed it out with these kind of like flesh colored fabrics inside yeah. so it's, it's really strange prop yeah it's really nice beautiful looking scene the next scene with Vale and Pierce. It's the setting in the countryside as well, kind of the winter yeah. countryside with the and almost you know the ten twenty seconds into the scene we get like the threat from the outside that sort of nice Hitchcockian uh, ticking bomb under the table as we see the gunman emptying out from a transit van and mm. like starting to surround the building and they're all kind of loaded up with shotguns ready to do damage. It's, yeah, it's a really nice moment. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you rate the action? I mean, in terms of like action filmmaking in the barn scene, I really it's like it. strong, isn't it? Yeah, I really like it. It's kind of, uh, it's a bit peck and par. It's kind of like big shotgun. You know, basically uh, the gunman come in, kill Pierce, and then um, in a nice kind of volley of shotgun blasts. Mm. Um, it's a shame that it's not more squibby. I wouldn't mind seeing <laughs> a little bit of blood. And then there's a really nice sort of kickback from Vale as he kind of unleashes his power and kind of no- 
knocks everybody down. Doesn't kill them all, does he? Because we see a few of them later on. No, I think he renders one completely useless because mm. um, it doesn't turn up in any later scenes. Mm. Completely fries their brains. Yeah, absolutely it? fries his mind. Yeah. I think the other two sort of survive it a bit. Yeah, I think I think the action overall, you know, because this is partly a sci-fi action b-movie thriller isn't it yeah yeah like, you know the, all of those things is all, all of those yeah those like the 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 car chase bit that follows there's a really nice one where the truck is just like going down the pavement yeah. pavement and then <laughs> swerves into traffic i was like oh that's nice yeah i mean all that all that stuff that kind of the nuts and bolts that you need hmm. that stuff works doesn't it's it? effective yeah definitely yeah. yeah this this scene considering how terrible the actors are in it i really like it well that's the thing that's what i was saying before it's like if even if you if you can do enough other stuff in a scene, you can control it in in other ways. You can kind of work around those handicaps, yeah, sure, and and make the film work overall. Mm. You know, one thing I thought when um, Cameron Vale first walks into Benjamin Pierce's barn, mm. and Benjamin Pierce does a little cackle, sounds exactly like Joaquin um, Phoenix's Joker laugh. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it's identical. No. Listen to it now. <laughs> I do like Robert Silverman, the actor who plays Benjamin Pierce. I mean, is he an actor? He's not really, but he's been in quite a few Cronenberg movies. Oh, yeah. He he had a better cameo in The Brood. Do you, have you seen The Brood? Do you know the basic? Do you, you know what? Uh, my stepdad put it on for him and a mate when I was about 11. And oh. I think I came in at like the wrong point and just like saw 10 minutes of carnage and I've never been able to go back to it since it's really good um, he's got a great cameo in that as um, another patient of Oliver Reed's clinic whose treatment has not been that successful but he's kind of like an annoying eccentric in the building and he's playing opposite Art Hindle who's quite quite a good actor uh, so it works a lot better oh, yeah, okay. and he has a really good uh, a really good cameo in Existence but he's particularly effective in that because he's a, a, a virtual reality game character <laughs> so he's not quite yeah, yeah. A, a human being, he yeah. just kind of has to respond to a couple of things, and they they kind of uses. I think he I think he'd understand if we said limitations. Yeah, yeah. very effectively. Yeah, of course. So Vale's now on a mission to meet Kim Obrist and her. Um, Why is he looking for them? How how are they connected to Revok? He's basically well, because they're all scanners, and Revok will have tried to either recruit them or kill them at some point. So it's just any kind of connection that'll lead into Revok. So there's these kind of like free it's floating. Like an underground, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, it's. It. I always think of it as just as a commune. They're none of them particularly well-adjusted people. They're all kind of finding solace together rather than... Yeah, I think they're treating it as like a sort of spiritual phenomenon Mm. more than something to be weaponized. So yeah, so he goes to meet them and very quickly is welcomed into their group, I thought, considering he's quite a dangerous character and it's a dangerous world. I thought they... Well, somebody scans him at the door, don't they? There's like a mental pat-down to see if he's... uh, a danger and I think they see that he's a, a good spirit maybe so we've already kind of discussed the group mind thing um, and then you get the the action scene that we mentioned before yeah you know, the chase through the streets I really love that moment when we have the really long tracking shot into Michael Ironside which we talked about earlier yeah but then there's a really nice montage of layered faces where we see that he's using his scanning abilities to control the two gunmen going into the building yeah and it's the only thing that that would flag that for you isn't it it's just because otherwise you just think they're yeah. on hired hands well, it's like a it's an army you know a scanner army he's mm. got his side they've got theirs but 
No, it's like he's on his own, basically. Right? Yeah, he's using them as puppets. Yeah, yeah. And because he's not recruiting other scanners, he's wiping them out. He's wiping them all out, and then what he's doing is controlling the ephemeral and creating a new generation of baby scanners. Yeah, which will then be his soldiers. Exactly. Yeah. Is there anything to talk about with the scene where Kim and Cameron are in the basement of the record shop and that hunter with a shotgun comes, tracks them down, follows them down the stairs, and then Cameron uses his abilities? Well... The, the, my main takeaway from those scenes is they're they're fairly sort of perfunctory telepathic ability scenes. I mean, the one that you talked about before in the in the corridors with the guard who sees his mother is is another thing. But my main takeaway from these is the sound design, which I want to talk about a bit more later okay. on. I just like that one where the guy's on his knees and we get his point of view looking up at them and they're looking down at him. I just felt like they were oh, starting yeah. to embrace their power and you know Cameron was starting to define himself. In this world, he's stepping out of the, his shadow. Yeah, his yeah. His father's shadow. Yeah, and the camera accentuates that, doesn't mm. it? Yeah. Yeah. So it was a nice, nice little moment. Oh, Jesus Christ, what is it called? Biocarbon Amalgamate. We get Cameron Vale hacking a computer to find Project Ripe. Well, yeah, well, that's the... Th- this is where, you know, if you start to think about it a bit, you think, so this is a guy who's been a derelict all his life, knows how to use a computer. Yeah. And we're not just talking about, like, a, a laptop of today. We're talking about a clunky old yeah 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 like, you have to write in code basically yeah. so he knows how to use a computer and access files oh, I just have to kind of yeah, go yeah. with that let it go considering how nice all the other interiors look the biocarbonate amalgamate scenes with those kind of paper hazmat suits I think they're like yeah and it's also the choice to shoot it with that weird filter on the lens which makes it look like oh, is this a shit TV movie or yeah, something yeah, yeah. it looks very yeah. Doctor Who doesn't it with yeah. the, the cracked ice uh, dry ice dry stuff. ice that's yeah, it yeah. <laughs> and then so that for me is the end of Act 2 um, and Act 3 is the whole end game thing Cameron and Kim they realise that they're in quite serious danger so they decide to come in to ComSec mm-hmm. get picked up and helicoptered in that's my favourite 1970s trope is characters arriving by helicopter <laughs> and landing in a, a circle perimeter circle of people stood waiting for them to, to come in that's a, for yeah. me that that was a real high point that just ticks the box yeah <laughs> that's definitely a really, really nice moment but it's a slightly um, confused and hackneyed few scenes coming mm. up there's, there's the weird Keller Obrist interrogation which has he weirdly comes on to her at some point for no reason at all. Yeah, yeah. It's, you feel like you've wandered into a slightly clunkier script, um, and then slaps her at one point. Uh, yeah. It's just like, really, is this slightly clunky stuff? Yeah, yeah. But then when she uses her power, he's really good in that scene where he's like, his arm flies back. Yeah. yeah. But the highlight of the whole kind of concept thing for me is when Vale breaks away from Ruth and goes goes off on his own path, which triggers Ruth to go into a an amazing interior monologue yeah. and I'm, no, I'm sounding like I'm taking the piss when yeah. I'm saying this but it's such an eccentric scene that it yeah, just yeah. it just works it's in its own way yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah, you don't look away you're just like what's, what's he doing who's yeah. he talking to uh, this film is he talking is, to me yeah. you know, what's, what's we're going to this man's interior thoughts for the first time yeah. but no it's, it's really you know, it's just one of those little eccentricities that, that twists the movie a bit more should we talk about Patrick McGoon at this stage it's a funny inclusion you know he was sort of never really a career actor right you know both seen him in the prisoner now he's he's solid consistent working all the time actor but never like a, an a-lister was he no he was, he was no. never a leading man material well, well that's it he he carried on working and being a character actor and doing you know 
character roles in quite a lot of familiar stuff. He didn't disappear off into like BBC TV land or anything. Mm, true. Yeah, he kept on working and working. He's he was a very kind of tortured man as well, and quite difficult on set for this one. Uh, I think he never got a handle on the material, so was very angry most of the time and quite difficult to deal with. But um, I think you know, like like a George C. Scott, it does feed into the performance quite well for for our benefit. He does seem like a genuinely kind of tortured. Yeah, character. I mean, he's really compelling when he's on screen. But I do find the fact that he's such a like such a, a tortured, withdrawn soul that there's moments of kind of like warmth and, and empathy that surprise you. Like yeah. when he takes when he takes Cameron Vale's hand after he gives him his first shot of ephemeral, and just is kind of like in that kind of companionship. Yeah, right, right. And then later on, when he's kind of semi comatose in his club, and Cameron calls him up and he says, "Oh, I've I've, I've missed you." So those little touches of, of humanity seem pleasing, yeah, doubly sure. pleasing yeah, when they come yeah. from somebody like that. Yeah, 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 that's a good point. So once they escape from Consec... Because um, the idea is that Cameron has discovered a computer program that has all of the names of the pregnant women that Revok is giving ephemeral to so that he can create a new generation of scanners under his control. So Ruth suggests that in another extremely evocative line, he says... Um, Scanning is just the linking of two nervous systems two nervous separated systems. by space, and a, yeah. a computer has a nervous system as well. So yeah. you can scan a computer as easily as you can a human. It's really well written, isn't it? Really well. Right? Considering <laughs> how clunky a lot of this stuff is, like that is so concise, incredible, and, so, and evocative as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so they pull up in uh, this kind of chilly, wintry garage forecourt with a phone yeah. booth out of town. So you kind of get this weird kind of open space, mm-hmm. exposed feeling. Yeah. yeah. Because um, the last time we saw them, they were stood in a corridor, and now yeah, they and don't been... get any more of the escape at all. They just sort of <laughs> cut forwards, and they're out. Uh, and he phones through from the phone booth to uh, scan the concept computer and scans it to access the right program. I I actually, with the exception of some of the, the dodgy kind of macro circuit <laughs> circuit board stuff. Oh, well, that's dated badly, isn't it? That's if, if I were doing a George Lucas, I would be replacing mm. those shots yeah sure sure because the rest of the scene plays really well it does yeah it still holds up you know it's credible and you know uh, you get both the exterior stuff which is getting more and more tense and you feel him you know mm. he's holding the uh, old telephone receiver and it's starting to like steam and kind of you know as he's pushing and pushing with his abilities and then we cut inside the computer room and they're like panicking about somebody having external access and trying to shut it down and put it into self-destruct. I think it's, it's a nice sequence. It, it feels very much like working with computers would have been at the time, that kind of... It's really I mean, slow, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, now you have like perfect graphic user interfaces which show you everything that's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you were doing this in a movie, you'd have a graphic interface going... It's kind going of speed of thought, isn't it, nowadays? Yeah. He's like, okay, I'm going to put it into auto-destruct. And he's like, okay, you need to lift up that flap and I'm going to switch this. And, you know, it's going to take about three or four minutes. But the guy, the actor's called Murray Crutchley. Oh, okay. Who... Is he an actual actor? I thought he was just like a technician. No, no, he... Computer nerd got other credits under the name of Lee Murray but I think he's, his performance is one of the best in the film. Yeah, yeah. Honestly it, he kind of nails that quiet confidence, you know I, 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 this is my job and I know exactly what yeah, I'm yeah, doing and I can it. answer your questions perfectly mm. but then he, he kind of gets that subtle comedy as well when he's at gunpoint mm-hmm. I really like Let's that performance yeah. It's nice, it sort of does build up to a nice kind of climax with everything exploding and 
the doors of the computer room getting blown off and Kenner, mm. who we haven't liked since the beginning. He's quite a good actor, that guy. Yeah, Lawrence Dane. Yeah, yeah, but he gets slammed and he's he's dead and a few mm. of the technicians as well, just for being... Just for spectacular. For being so clever, yeah. <laughs> the kind of pyrotechnics at the, at the garage forecourt mm. as well. It's, I think the image of the melting phone is fantastic. It's really good, yeah, yeah. yeah. One of my favourite choices comes next and it's one of those things that, that highlights how important like you know art design and and world building are kim and cameron pull up in suburbia and they absolutely nail suburbia in every aspect it's a beautiful tree-lined street yeah, yeah it's autumnal, white, isn't yeah, it? yeah autumnal white houses uh, kids playing in the street mm. blue sky it's complete and deliberate change from all the kind of concrete and, and yeah, yeah. This is modernism where real people live well this is kind of like the safe cocoon of the real world isn't mm-hmm. it and you go to a doctor's surgery where there's a kind of like a pretty pregnant mother and the doctor's like mm-hmm. a slightly crusty but friendly old guy and it's yeah. like to then kind of upend that with the kind of unborn baby scanning Kim in that environment, you realise how, how strange and odd they are yeah, to the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, really nicely done. Yeah, I really like that. And I like um, Revok turning up at the end of the scene as well. I thought that was a nice kind of reveal, like he's still tracking them. And mm. I guess if you're watching this the first time, you wouldn't necessarily realise that you were approaching the end of the movie, but you are suddenly in the last scene of the film, aren't you? Yeah, that's it. I mean, Revok has caught up with Vale. Yeah. So, I mean, let's get on to this idea that they're brothers created by Dr. Ruth. It doesn't sound crowbarred in. It doesn't necessarily sound like it was something that was tacked on. So the idea is that Dr. Ruth has given his pregnant wife the ephemeral and then discovered that the children were born with scanning abilities? Well, discovered that they were difficult at first and difficult to control and the only thing that could placate them was um, ephemeral. I think it's later in life they would have discovered the scanning abilities. And at what point, as brothers, would they have been separated? I mean... I just think, because it's such a big, like, we're brothers! And he's our father. It's one of those moments in the film which I just I can't I can't There's, swallow the logic of it. I, I, it just works in that kind of clunky soap opera. Yeah, soap opera sort of way. But none of it really holds together if you look any any closer. There's there's another line when this conversation gets a bit tense towards the end and Revok starts becoming megalomaniacal. Vale says to him, um, "No, you, you're you're just like him. You're just like Ruth." And I was like, "Well, you've never seen Ruth behave that way. What are you talking about? It just yeah, doesn't it doesn't yeah. work. You've never you know Ruth has never been particularly. He's never lost it. Basically. He's never lost it, and he's never." talked about world domination at all what is this mm. so i don't think a lot of it works on that level yeah, it's annoying that isn't it because yeah. there's another pass on the film that with a little bit of uh, tidying up on the narrative structure and some yeah, of the plot I mean, points this is that was just that was not going to happen this I is know, just I, know, but it, it, I think that's the most frustrating thing you know if you if you recast rewrite reshoot <laughs> There's a much better film to be had from this. Yeah, but that's see. that's that's the beauty of B movies, isn't it? That's that's guess, the thing. Yeah. You get you get the sort of raw energy and the raw ideas there, but if you start to sort of poke and prod at them, then they all they do start to fall down a bit. Yeah. Okay. I think we're kind of we're we're delaying getting to the actual meat of the scene, which is I'm really surprised. I mean, obviously the exploding head is shorter and easier to show, but I'm really surprised the scanning duel isn't as famous. Yeah, because it's hideous. It's, it's yeah, really it's, difficult it's really to watch. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really yeah, quite quite special. That I think mm. when you see the veins pop and the, so the brothers, the, the brothers don't see eye to eye. Vale won't come aboard. Revox 
plan for world domination. Vale hits him with an objet d'art that's on his desk. Um, and that obviously makes Revok very angry, and he decides he cuts he's loose with his scanning powers, doesn't he? Yeah. What what I don't what I don't understand about about his line. I'm going to suck you dry. I'm going to do this the old-fashioned way. I'm going to suck you dry. What what's he talking about? What's he going to do? Because he doesn't want any information from him, does he? He no, just wants him to I've, join the cause. Yeah. Yeah, it's true actually. I mean, it's a cool line, but it doesn't make much sense. Makes no sense. But they 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 start a scanning fist fight where they're just throwing assaults at one another. It's quite cool, though. I think no, it's, you, it's, you do buy into it. And yeah, absolutely. And it's what I do like about it as well is it doesn't just feel like random shit one thing after another. Yeah, it yeah. does escalate. Yeah, yeah. And there is kind of a back and forth between it, which is properly scripted and acted mm. and worked out beforehand. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right about the escalation. It feels like each cut moves us further along in this duel. Yeah, and, and they're kind of like doubling up on what they've done to the other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's a definite definite push back and forth isn't it yeah and one of the things that well i hesitate to say like about it but one of the things i think is so powerful about it i mean it's just for me i find it really difficult to watch there does come a point halfway through where it's clear that that vale isn't going to survive this mm. even if he wins the duel he physically cannot survive it he's had his yeah. heart melted out yeah that's it and we see him uh, burst into flames and... well even before that when he's when his face has been so badly attacked that he's sort of peeling at chunks of his flesh and he realizes that yeah, yeah. he's going to die i find that extremely difficult to watch in anything yeah, sure. you know when somebody's been so mutilated but they're still alive you just can't put yourself in that Mm-mm. in that mind space at all yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and this is why it's so kind of beautifully plotted and put together it's like he realizes it at that point and then that motivates him to his next thing which is to kind of abandon his body and set it on fire and then just launch himself at, at, at Revok. yeah i didn't realize uh, that he'd set himself on fire i always read it as no it's very much like a zen thing he kind of places his palms up and then and then they come i thought that was a technical thing just to hide the gel the fire gel no, no, that's 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 literally. It's like a, it's like a, a Christ, a, a, like a pose, like a pose of sacrifice. He holds yeah. up his hands, and they catch fire, and then the rest of him catches fire. Oh, right, okay. And then he just kind of relinquishes his body and kind of. Is that when his eyes burst? Out? Yeah, I think the the suggestion is he's kind of launching himself through out of his skull and into Revok. Ah, uh, yeah, and so when Revok's eyes go white. That's the, the point where he's, transference. he's yeah he's kind of fighting off um, Vale's attack. So they're both inside their body now, fighting for supremacy. Yeah. The fact that we can talk about what is effectively, you know, we can talk about that much drama and narrative in what is effectively silent effect shots. Yeah, I it's mean, pretty it's amazing. It's really convincing. It's a probably a good point just to have a little sidebar about Dick Smith, who was called in kind of last minute to, a, to sort of yeah another on, on the visual effects. Well, they'd shot it so quickly um, to, to get principal photography done and they realised the scene didn't work, so they reshot they, it months later. It's a very later. famous um, still taken of Cameron Vale's head exploding. That was the original ending, wasn't it? Oh, was it? Yeah. Ah. So the, the shot of Michael Ironside that's on the poster of him, you know, his body all tense and roaring... That's from the original ending. Yes, yeah, so this is another another of Dick Smith's. Um, he had about three emerging from retirement episodes, one after the other. He had mm. like altered states and this, and he also did effects for Ghost Story. I think this was when um, he did this when altered states was in shutdown. Oh, okay, but yeah, it's it's phenomenal work, isn't it? Yeah, it's I was really great. I was really 
a bit disappointed, you know, with the unforgiving sharpness of Blu-ray. You can sort of some see a couple of the joins, which I'd never noticed before. Yeah, okay. But you wouldn't but, see that on VHS. No. Oh, you uh-huh. you probably wouldn't see it on thirty-five mil either with mm-hmm. the grain and noise and. You know, uh, Stephen Lack takes credit for some of those effects because it kept uh, bursting. Yeah. And so he said, like, just pinpricks at the end. It's a tube. Just put a pinprick at the end, and then. All that stuff with the blood squirting across his face was from the <laughs> pinpricks that he'd said just to relieve the pressure in the pipes. And apparently he still has the other head from the um, the exploding head scene. Really? He has that. Yeah, there's some really nice photos again and a lovely interview with him and he takes it to conventions and <laughs> people pose with it and stuff. He said like in the 70s people would like put their knobs on it and stuff and now people <laughs> just like give it a hug. So. I guess this is as good a time as any to talk about the sound design, yep. which I only noticed how brilliant it was. I mean, obviously some of it sticks with you from, from first viewing, like the distorted fluttering voices and mm-hmm. stuff, but um, the kind of bleed through from sound design into the music for a lot of these scenes is really, really great. Maybe I should just talk about the music. This is yeah. an early Howard Shaw soundtrack. Um possibly his second or third for Cronenberg. I mean, the, the patterns there that he kind of used for, for all of his earlier Cronenberg soundtracks, the the opening music is very, very similar to that of The Fly. You just get kind of like an, an opening declaration and then it kind of wanders, flutters, flutters and wanders around. And his earlier scores have like a like a small orchestra um, and then a lot of synthesizers. But this time around, I was, I was really, really pleased with how how well chosen and well used the synthesizer sounds were in this then you know a lot of times you just get somebody who'll just sit down with the synthesizer and like slightly tweak a preset and it'll just sound shit but these all sound really really effective and there's stuff in it you know there's there's subtle things that bring otherwise quite lifeless scenes to life there's the whole thing in consec with keller in interrogating kim obrist that's got like a like an oscillating drone behind it that just holds the whole scene together. Your best protection is to tell us everything we need to know. As soon as you do, Revik will cease to be a threat to anyone. Not good enough. Revik's people are everywhere. And that scares me. To be honest with you, Kim, the only one you should be afraid of is me. But these kind of like, like the orchestra is going as well in this kind of dual scene um, with the main theme. But you've also got these like incredibly ferocious synth sounds, which just really, really suggest these focused psychic yeah, powers. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's supposed to sound like a headache, isn't it? Yeah. Again, I was just startled by how how good the soundtrack was. And what about the other collaborators? Do we want to do a quick kind of whistle stop tour of Mark Irvin, DOP? Ah, uh, yeah. The, the makeup guys, Stephen Duplay or Stefan, I think they called him. Stefan was he the guy who pulled out the shotgun to eventually pull off yeah, the yeah. <laughs> exploding yeah, head? It's a famous story <laughs> that, but for anyone that doesn't know, they I think they were quite frustrated trying to explode the head, and they had different types of. Uh, 
rubberized and plastic and all sorts of different heads and they just yeah. couldn't get it to work. They couldn't use pyro because you'd see sparks and it's not supposed yeah. to be that sort of thing. And they were trying to inflate it at one point but it just kept stretching like a balloon didn't mm. it? And I think he was so fucked off he just cleared the set, brought out a shotgun <laughs> and blasted it. And there's a, a nice sort of aside that Michael Ironside talks about where he says you know, is it realistic that I'm sat next to it but you can't see me? And they said, okay, yeah, good, yeah, let's get you in. He's like, okay, so what I'll need is, like, this much money, this, that. <laughs> and they're like, oh, let's do it, do it as a single, let's do it as a single. So that's why he's not. It's quite odd. I only noticed this time around. Have you seen, uh, towards the end of that scene when they're clearing the auditorium, there's a high shot looking down on the table, oh, and there's, like, no body and no blood and no anything. Uh, and I'm like, ah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'd like to talk about Mark Irwin, because he's always in the shade because Peter Sushitsky is obviously phenomenally good sure. at everything he does and I do think that his Cronenberg films are beautiful it's a nice collaboration of, it's it's you you know, the, the technique and the sensibilities I think are nicely aligned but I do think having seen this and and looking back on Cronenberg's earlier movies I do think Irwin was really onto something I do think there are things in those early movies that you don't see again um, you know they had a famous parting of the ways after the fly. Uh, no, I didn't. Well, because Cronenberg's obviously is very much loves to have his team around him, and after the fly, uh, everyone was lined up to do Dead Ringers, just about to shoot, and then it was put in turnarounds. It was Dino De Laurentiis was funding it originally, and his production company just was about to fold. So it's put in turnaround for almost a year, and Mark Irwin went off and got another job doing the remake of The Blob. And then Cronenberg came back to him and said, look, yeah, we're ready to shoot now. He's like, well, I can't. I'm on another job. And I don't know if harsh words were exchanged because Cronenberg still bears a grudge about it. Oh, really? Yeah, he's, he, Mark Irwin's position always seems perfectly reasonable to me. It's like, I've taken another job. I can't just walk away from this other movie. Um, and Cronenberg was very, very huffy, and that's why he went with Peter Sushitsky from that point onwards. But I do think that what Irwin does in the films the way that he kind of captures particularly exteriors and things that would seem mundane warehouse exteriors that are imbued with a strange sort of menace yeah, he's got a good eye isn't yeah. he definitely well, i think he's a really really good dp and he had a terrific career following on he did um lots of stuff with wes craven uh, and then started working with the farrelly brothers that's right and yeah, he's yeah. He definitely went into comedy didn't yeah he? yeah so whilst you know i think peter sashitsky is is fantastic yeah. i wouldn't put mark owen's work down at all no no definitely not his stuff on on the dead zone and the fly and and this particularly yeah, yeah. is a lovely rich looking movie yeah it's great the only other note i have is on um gary zeller one of the fx guys and he's the uh the creator of the zell gel gary zeller zell gel get it is, yeah 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 the uh the fire gel that you put you can you, just set fire to and you put it on your clothes on your skin and that's it, and I think this was the first time he'd used it. It's a good showcase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, as I said at the beginning, you know, and, and hopefully I feel I might have, we might have justified it over the course of the last hour and a bit. I, I do think it's, it's, it's frustrating that it's just, you know, it's just like a minor entry in Cronenberg's filmography now. Yeah, I mean, it's not as polished, and, you know, his later work, I think, and maybe... I don't know, does he talk about it much? Not at all, really, yeah, no. I, th I think that's probably why. Uh, yeah, and I feel, you know, because it was a big hit at the time, and it did make a big kind of impact on, 
on horror cinema. It was definitely something that people talked about throughout throughout the eighties. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, you know, I'd, I'd imagine when you know when it was notorious when I was a kid. You know, it was the film people would point at in the video shop. You know, yeah. have you seen that? Have you seen that? There's always somebody that lied about seeing it. Um, you know, by you know, I think it was only overtaken by perhaps The Fly as the most talked about Cronenberg movie mm. when you know some five six years later. Uh, and that was kind of the new benchmark of mainstream Cronenberg, wasn't it? That was, mm-hmm. I think that that kind of eclipsed it. And it's you know, despite having two or th- was it two, three shitty director video sequels, so right. four sequels. You yeah. haven't seen any of those? No, no. I just skimmed through the um the posters. There's a beautiful poster for Scanner Cop Two: The Takeover. It's really, really visually striking. Okay. And then I watched the trailer, and it was terrible. <laughs> And I just feel that it deserves a little bit more credit. Um, it's not one of my favourite films, you know. It's not. It's not my favourite Cronenberg by any stretch. Sure. But every time I see it, I'm. I'm. You know, there's something to enjoy in every scene. Yeah, something that's exploring. You know, cinematic curiosities. This is the kind of perfect movie to put on the menu. You know, you might. Would you like pair it up with another Cronenberg? Maybe with the Fly. Like absolutely with w- the Fly. Watch this and then the Fly, and you kind of you get the 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 leap forwards don't you yeah